Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Danielle Conrad, Executive Director of the ACLU of Nebraska. A lifelong Nebraskan, Danielle was born and raised in rural Seward County, and she and her family currently live in Lincoln. She was elected to the Nebraska Legislature in 2006 and re-elected in 2010. Her professional career has included working as a staff attorney and policy advocate for low-income working families and new immigrants at the social justice nonprofit Nebraska Appleseed, executive director of the Lincoln Parks Foundation, and political consulting. After leading a successful effort to raise the state minimum wage via citizen initiative, Danielle became the executive director of the ACLU of Nebraska in November 2014. Danielle, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here and really excited for our time together. So tell me, what was your childhood like? Oh my goodness, I'm so fortunate. I had such a lovely childhood growing up in rural Seward County, as you mentioned in in my bio. And for um, our Omaha friends who may not be familiar, that's just about a half an hour west of our state capital in Lincoln, so not too far away from from where I am now. But I grew up out in the country. My father was a deputy sheriff. My mother was an elementary school teacher. I have one brother who now is a seed salesman and four years younger than I. And we attended country school in Staplehurst, Nebraska. And it was a a wonderful experience spending a lot of time outside fishing and camping and being in 4-H and taking care of animals and um, a really close-knit farming and, and rural community um, as a neighbor to our, our capital, our state capital. And so um, one kind of kind of striking memories from my childhood, which put me on the path um, that brought me here today and and led me through through various um, professional endeavors was when I was in about fourth grade, I was at my mom and dad's house and we were watching channel 1011 news, which was kind of the 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 touchstone for for where we we got our information. And at that point, there was two women running for governor in Nebraska, um, Mayor Helen Busalis and and State Treasurer Kay Orr. And I I had one of those literal lightning bolt moments where I was watching these these two incredible women leaders on on our television talk about their campaigns and their vision for our state, and I was awestruck. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do um, somehow or another with my life and and with my time and talent. So my parents were kind enough to take me to Lincoln. And I decided at that point that I was a Democrat in fourth grade. (laughs) And they were very supportive of my interests. Um, And we went to Helen Busalis' campaign headquarters. And I got t-shirts and yard signs and stickers and then went back home and and walked them around my section. And all of my Republican (laughs) neighbors were very kind to their neighbor who, who was earnest making her first foray into politics. Helen, unfortunately, lost the election, and I watched everything I could about it. But shortly thereafter, we ran into her when we were doing some school shopping in Lincoln, and 
the way my mom tells the story, I was speechless for the first and last time in my life. <laughs> and so she told Helen that I had volunteered on her campaign and Helen was so kind and gracious. And she came to my country school and we had Helen Busalis Day and we talked about government and politics and public service. And we, we stayed in touch and she was my mentor and with me when I kicked off my campaign for the legislature and is always in, in my heart and, and in my head when I'm, I'm trying to do the right thing for my community. So my career got an early start and it was, um, it was part of the, the really happy and, and fortunate childhood I had in, in Seward County. Were you indulged by your parents when you declared that your political <laughs> leanings were more liberal than, uh -huh. than possibly theirs or your neighbors? And how did you formulate this idea at age 10, 11 or so <laughs> that you were on the more progressive spectrum of the you know, political aisle? Right. Um, my parents were absolutely supportive of of that that early interest in politics and have continued to be my my champions through today. I usually say that it's it's really their fault that I have a career in public service because as a public school teacher and um, as a deputy sheriff, they really emulated that commitment to community and and to community service that I I think influenced and informed my interests and and passions. Um, they definitely shared a lot of my more progressive viewpoints, even um, with those those bios and, and in perhaps an unlikely landscape. So I think that they probably contributed a, a great deal to to some of my ways of thinking um, about these issues. And and also our, our family was very involved in um, our Catholic church community, which had a strong social justice tradition. And so I think that definitely helped to influence some of my my early thinking as well. Um, and I'm so grateful for their support because from knocking doors on my campaigns to going through the, the headache and heartache that comes with somebody you love in, in the public eye and in the slings and arrows of that outrageous fortune, um, they've, they've always been proud and they've always been supportive and um, they're, they're definitely a, a big part of my story. Just for my clarity, it would be easy to assume that your mother is a public school mm -hmm. teacher. The stereotype would be that, that she has more liberal leanings. Mm -hmm. Your father is a deputy sheriff. It would be a natural assumption uh, if a stereotype to mm -hmm. assume that perhaps he was somewhat more Republican. And we are in Nebraska, which mm -hmm. is generally uh, right. um, a, a red state. Mm -hmm. Was there Were they both liberal leaning or was there any tension that we might learn from today in terms mm -hmm. of um, living and valuing people across the political spectrum? Well, you know, they're definitely both um, strong influences in, in my life and have their own independent viewpoints on, on a host of different issues. But I think their, their values and their perspectives are probably more similar than dissimilar. And that's probably influenced by a, a lot of different um, perspectives. My mom's family um, was a Navy family, and they grew up all around the world and settled on the East Coast before she came to Nebraska for college mm -hmm. and then started her, her educational career here teaching in our public school. So that, I think, definitely influenced her perspective on, on political and community issues. 
And then, you know, my dad's family had that really deep connection to the to the church and the social justice teachings. And um, after he graduated from high school, he volunteered to serve in Vietnam and served our country admirably in the Navy and then returned home after that, worked for his family business for a few years before he, he entered law enforcement. And I think he really uh, took a community policing kind of spirit and mentality with him on his beat and and seeing how how difficult and important that job was to advancing our public safety but also to to really serving our neighbors in a thoughtful and appropriate way and and utilizing the incredible power and discretion that comes with that that position um to make a difference in in a positive way and in not always a a reflexive way. Um, And so I think both of their experiences uh, definitely influenced me and and continue to be a really rich source of of my understanding about the world. And I remember when I was in law school and working through criminal procedure and looking at these really meaty and fascinating issues about the Fourth Amendment. And when you're making a traffic stop, what's the difference between reasonable suspicion and probable cause? And, you know, to have that that kind of front lines perspective um, was invaluable and and definitely something that that continues in my work at the ACLU. We frequently do a lot of civil rights work that includes um, police practices reform or accountability for police practices. And and I think at um, first blush, many would think that we have an incredibly adversarial relationship with law enforcement. Um, we definitely don't see eye to eye on every issue, but I think people would be surprised to know how civil and collaborative at times our relationship is with leaders like Chief Schmatterer, with Chief Blymeister in Lincoln, um, and how much we we appreciate the difficulty of their job. And at the end of the day, I think want more of the same rather than, than different outcomes for our community. But sometimes the strategies are a little bit different. mentioned going to law school. Yes. I want to ask about the motivation to to go to law school. Why why become a lawyer? So we've started with this epiphany that public service is something that is aspirational and worthy and that was only at age 10 and or 11. <laughs> <laughs> and and then and then you sort of um, traverse your 
sort of teenage years and, and then eventually college and, and law. So bring us up to speed. Tell sure. us tell us about um, your teenage years and, and then the motivations to, to go to law school. Why be a lawyer? Sure, absolutely. So um, as I mentioned, after having that incredible encounter with Helen Busalis, which was so meaningful to me and, and changed the trajectory of my life, I became a pen pal with Helen. You remember back when you used to write letters to people, right? Instead of just texting or or sending them a Snapchat or something. And so literally for decades from fourth grade forward, Helen and I wrote letters back and forth to each other. And when I was um, getting ready to graduate from law school, she actually shared with me as she was cleaning out some of her old files, uh, a file of correspondence that she had saved of ours throughout the years. And it was um, so special to see not only that she'd saved it and it was meaningful to her, but then to look back and see in my, you know, little kid handwriting from sixth grade on like my little pony stationery or something. <laughs> and in full disclosure, my handwriting is not much better today than it was at that point in time. But I would write her um, these letters and say like, dear Mrs. Busalis, I made you a friendship bracelet. P.S. What do you think about crime? And she would always <laughs> respond. She never was dismissive or um, didn't have time to to really uh, help to inform my questions and, and thinking over many, many years. And so I knew that I wanted to continue a career in public service. Um, I knew a couple of things. One, our family wasn't independently wealthy. And so um, I needed to, to find another path um, to kind of get my foot in the door in the political arena. Um, my family also, even though they were active citizens in our community, weren't particularly political. They weren't particularly involved in campaigns and elections or political parties. So I didn't have that that kind of natural um, entree into the political world. And so my research and discussion with other people that I admired in public service helped to illuminate a path forward. And that was by being trained in the law and having those experiences that that would help me to really hone my skills to be an effective public servant and to to really um, kind of get my, my foot in the door, so to speak. And so I started volunteering on campaigns in high school and college and, and learned a lot about electoral politics on school board races all the way up to gubernatorial and congressional races. And then um, I was a political science major at the University of Nebraska and, and loved that experience, which was really special, but always had my eyes set on, on law school. And so it was part of fulfilling a lifelong dream when I was admitted. I, I loved the University of Nebraska College of Law, its size, its accessibility, its commitment to public service, um, its proximity to our state capitol, which always made my heart a flutter um, and still does to this day. And so after having worked on a lot of campaigns and getting my my skills up and, and a, enhancing my understanding of the power and the elegance of the law um, and litigation as a tool, I, I knew that when term limits came to Nebraska and my district in North Lincoln, the Fight in 46 Legislative District, um, had an open seat for the first time in almost 30 years after Senator Landis's admirable service. 
I decided to recruit myself and throw my my hat in the ring. And so it was a, a rather brash move for a 20-something-year-old uh, recent law school grad. So you had this passion, you had this relationship and m- mentoring and, and networking connection, and then you build this academic platform and pedigree as well through the study of law. And lo and behold, with Nebraska term limits, the Fighting 46th, I think That's you said. Right. That's fighting right. Fighting 46. The fighting 46th of North Lincoln. <laughs> that opened up. That's right. And you put yourself forward. But this is at a time that perhaps here we are uh, post the 2018 midterms. Sure. And so if we think a decade ago, the idea of a woman running for office, especially a younger woman, uh, even then, I think, would have seemed a little eyebrow-raising. So tell us about the landscape for a young woman running for political office in Nebraska and how you actually decided to make that leap. Sure. Um, well, as as we already talked about a little bit, I was always passionate about public service and government, and I loved campaigns and elections. Um, what I realized very quickly in my my legal career after graduating from law school was that we could do really important work to help people and, and help address their problems um, in, in a retroactive or, or defensive posture, which was meaningful but limited in in terms of of the remedy. And so one thing that was so thrilling about policymaking from my perspective is that you had a chance to be more proactive. And then in addition to being more proactive instead of just reactive, the scope and scale of the amount of impact and the amount of people that you could help was was unparalleled. So, for example, being able to help an individual family who was denied public benefits unlawfully um, and utilize uh, the legal system to do that, as, as we did at Nebraska Appleseed, was incredibly meaningful and helped that family and helped set the right precedent so that other families wouldn't be unlawfully denied. But the first piece of legislation I dropped as a a new senator was to increase the state minimum wage. And that was successful and came on the tails of the last time our federal government sought to increase the minimum wage. And that helped almost 100,000 Nebraska families um, be rewarded from their, for their work, lessen their reliance on public assistance, um, and, and ensure that um, Nebraska employers were, were paying fair wages for, for hard work. And so that is such an incredible opportunity to be able to um, – you know, really help to shape the trajectory and the vision for our state and to help so many of our neighbors along the way that I, I always, I think, understood the the power that came with that that responsibility. Um, and so uh, it was was something that was always of interest to me. And I, I, I love state policy level. I'm fascinated about what happens in Washington, D.C. I'm grateful that we have so many thoughtful and hardworking local leaders. But I always love state policy, and I love our special Nebraska legislature um, in all its nonpartisan glory to have an opportunity to serve in that that incredibly unique, special, and effective uh, institution um, is is just unparalleled in in our country as well. And where you could have the power, it takes 
you know, 25 votes to pass any law. I sat on the Appropriations Committee for eight years, which wrote our state budget and crafted our priorities as a state. Five hands to get something in the budget. I mean, that is an unbelievable um, ability to make a positive difference in in this environment. And so it was just thrilling and full of possibilities um, and something that I was was just always absolutely interested in and and loved my my service in the legislature and felt like I really made a positive difference. So running for office as a young woman had its pros and cons. <laughs> You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is Danielle Conrad, Executive Director of the ACLU of Nebraska. What were some of the yeah. cons then? You know, you had to, you didn't just run once, you ran once right. and then you ran again That's as right. an incumbent. That's right. I really enjoyed hearing your passion and the zest you have for that part of the service. And, and obviously we'll come on to the ACLU in just a second, but it sounds great, but politics is politics. Yeah. It's, it's not all everybody fulfilling their passion. That's right. So tell me about the experience in all its glory sure. and all, all its challenge. Sure. Um, so one of the challenging things is um, as a state senator, you make $12,000 a year, which doesn't quite pay for fancy things like student loans and food. And rent. Especially not law school. Or law school student loans. Exactly. And since I didn't come from a family with um, independent wealth, I, I had significant student loan bills to pay. And so that was definitely a personal sacrifice. Um, out and about on the campaign trail, one of the most beautiful parts of our electoral process and our democratic system is the relationship you build with your constituents. But it also becomes very personal and very familiar. And so as I was out knocking doors in, in both of my campaigns, and I knocked over 8,000 doors in each of my campaigns, wore out a couple pair of tennis shoes. Um, I, I learned so much about what was top of mind for my neighbors and, and shared some of my ideas for, for how to address those issues. But people are also, um, they're not afraid to let you, <laughs> you know, when you're on their, their doorstep about, um, 
maybe the differences of opinions that you may hold. Um, I, I definitely, especially the first time around when I was, was single and in my 20s, I was married by the time I, I started my reelection campaign, I did receive a lot of very curious comments about voters who wanted to know a lot more about my personal life. Um, why was I single? Did I have children? What was my sexual orientation? Why wasn't I married? Why wasn't I pursuing a family instead of this career? And so those were some um, questions that I don't think I was quite prepared for <laughs> the first go around, but I tried to always be honest and authentic about um, my motivations for, for being involved with that. And I think it probably opened more hearts um, than closed minds in, in having those kinds of conversations. But there were definitely some some hard conversations at the door, too. I, I definitely remember um, one in particular that stands out. And I, I remembered when I was going kind of on my second lap around the district that they had my opponent's yard sign in their front yard. But I thought, but if only they meet me and if only we have a chance to visit, we can open a dialogue and, you know, no vote unturned, no, leave no door unknocked. And so I went up and I knocked on the door and I was getting ready to start my, my um, kind of stump speech. And um, the very nice... Um, young woman who answered the door said, stop, stop. I know exactly who you are. Um, my whole family and I hate you uh, because you're a baby killer and we want nothing to do with you and we don't want you on our doorstep, which was jarring. Um, I think that uh, the voter clearly was referencing my support of reproductive freedom. And that was um, an issue that she felt very passionately about. And I remember being a bit crestfallen at, at that moment. But then walking away, I, I thought, oh, my goodness, I got recognized before I even had a chance to put my name out there. So maybe there is a positive. Maybe it is working. So I think that, you know, you, you have to have a strong sense of who you are and why you're doing what you're doing um, when you go into it. I think you have to have a sense of humor um, for those unexpected challenges that come forward. Um, and I, I think the other piece is at the end of the day, I'd rather have somebody be engaged and passionate than apathetic and disengaged. Uh, uh, I think that's the greater danger to our democracy and our electoral process. Um, we, you, so those were <laughs> those were a few challenges. Um, yeah, you don't seem apathetic in in I'm any not. no. <laughs> so um, on really any topic. <laughs> well, clearly you are. Uh, you decided to take a break and uh, from any kind of concern or care for. <laughs> the betterment of Nebraska by um, eventually becoming the executive director of the ACLU here. Would you tell us about what the ACLU is? Yes. Maybe a little of its history and what it stands for, and then the nature of your role. Yes, absolutely. So um, after, I call this my constitutional retirement job because I was term limited. I was no longer able to serve my district in the legislature after eight years of having an opportunity to live my life stream. And I was, you know, in my early thirties and <laughs> needed to find a, a new trajectory. And so they just happened to have an opening at the, the ACLU. Their executive director had transitioned and I'd worked with them a little bit when I was 
was in the legislature on criminal justice issues and reproductive freedom and other civil rights and civil liberties issues, which I spent a fair amount of my legislative career doing um, defensive work on a lot of, of those topics in the Nebraska legislature. But I didn't know a whole lot about their organization, to be really honest. Um, I wasn't a card-carrying member uh, who was actively involved in the the local or, or national organization, but I respected their work. It was always credible. It was always related to issues that I was passionate about. One thing that I loved about their approach was the fact that they got to work the waterfront. They weren't a single issue organization um, from immigrants' rights to death penalty to reproductive freedom and free speech and everything in between. That was a thrilling opportunity. Um, and it seemed like it might be kind of fun to dust off my law degree and help with the litigation a little bit, keep a foot in the policy arena, and then also get out and about and do community education and um, community empowerment, which I love. Uh, so it seemed really fun to be able to work on a lot of issues with a lot of different tools. Um, and it provides a lot of flexibility so that um, I can also attend to the needs of my young family. And um, the really cool thing is I get to wear jeans most days. Their coffee's a little bit better than the legislature's, so that's nice. And I make more than $12,000 a year, so I'm living my best life. Uh, and I'm very, very excited and honored to be there and, um, you know, really feel like we're making a, a positive difference on, on a lot of key issues in this community and, and in the state and, and in the country. I'll, I'll tell you, four years ago, not as many people knew about the ACLU as they do today, which is um, a mixed blessing, I think, in many ways. It's been four years. That's right. And in that four years, the notable civil rights uh, moment has been the election of the uh, Trump administration. And that has all sorts of implications from, uh, as, as you say, the awareness of the ACLU and, and other issues associated with uh, social justice mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Um, so that four years has been quite momentous in some ways. Absolutely. So tell us about this journey and maybe some of the things that you are working on, some of the cases that are really are notable and Absolutely. stand out. Absolutely. So the ACLU is preparing to celebrate its 100th anniversary um, in 2020 on, on the national level. We just celebrated our 50th anniversary in Nebraska in 2016. So we're one of the nation's and the state's oldest and most well-established civil rights and civil liberties organizations. We are fiercely nonpartisan. Um, we are principled. And so our work is... Um, always bigger than any one party or any one person. Um, it definitely has been elevated to new heights to deal with some of the unprecedented threats to civil rights and civil liberties emanating from the Trump administration and emboldening state and local leaders to um, utilize rhetoric and take actions that um, in many ways were previously unimaginable. So our work has taken on um, new importance in recent years, but our, our model and our values um, are deeply American and have 
stood the test of time. And I think the ACLU has a, a very bright future regardless of who's sitting in the Oval Office. Um, and progressive and conservative elected leaders have all had challenges when it comes to protecting and defending civil rights and civil liberties. So um, in some ways, that's full employment for ACLU attorneys um, and in part of, of our democratic process. But in recent years, our profile has definitely been elevated. I think people um, were concerned and scared, really scared actually, about uh, what this administration might do to key civil rights and civil liberties issues. And one of the the very first and and defining moments that I think catapulted um, our organization forward was um, President Trump kept true to his campaign promises. And shortly after he was elected, he issued um, a Muslim ban through executive order, uh, dramatically changing uh, how we how we uh, process asylees and refugees and in our broader immigration system. And the ACLU um, sprang forward and was one of the first organizations to secure a, a legal injunction against that um, unconstitutional effort. Now, since the Supreme Court has said otherwise, but really at that moment, and I'll, I'll never forget that, um, that weekend, it, it happened um, over, a, I believe, a cold January weekend, and watching um, people from across the country pour into airports. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. You remember seeing that on yep. your social media and, mm-hmm. and your traditional media feeds and the chaos that was happening in the streets and at our ports of entry and the legal first responders from the ACLU and other organizations that rushed forward to to protect people and, and try to bring some clarity um, was really a, a point where we saw an unbelievable outpouring of support. Um, And people were voting with their dollars and saying, um, we want to support your work at at this moment to help meet these unprecedented challenges. So our organization has been growing a lot in recent years. We have about 20,000 members statewide in Nebraska in every legislative district that are are really activists at their heart and who take action in support of the issues that we're working on and, and that really complement our policy work and, and our community empowerment work. Um, and the cool thing about working at the ACLU is it's a lot like the Nebraska legislature in many ways, is that because we work on issues and we're not partisan, we get to work with people across the political spectrum frequently. And I think that um, is powerful and important and effective. I'll give you one quick example. We have a huge overcrowding crisis in our Nebraska prisons. Um, unfortunately, our system is at the top of the list you don't want to be at the top of. Um, we're the second most overcrowded prison system in the country behind only Alabama. And our system of mass incarceration has has fostered and ensnared so many Nebraskans that about one in 10 Nebraska kids has a parent in the criminal justice system. Let that sink in for a minute. And not only are our prisons overcrowded, but they're severely under-resourced. Um, and one of our most stalwart champions in fighting for smart justice reforms is the Platt Institute, um, founded by Governor Ricketts, supporting um, very conservative right-of-center causes. 
Uh, and we're so grateful for that partnership. But it goes to show when you focus on issues and you focus on principles, you know, you can really make a difference in the political arena and turn some heads. And that's when politics is fun and cool and interesting and powerful. Um, so I, I love being able to bring that experience in into this into this role. And what does needy do? Is that the other question? <laughs> what are we working on? That was the other question. So our top priorities in Nebraska, uh, we look at where are the greatest threats to civil rights and civil liberties? Where can we uniquely make a difference? Um, where are other partners not working in this space to ensure that we're not duplicating efforts? And and really what we focused on in Nebraska are, is the criminal justice system and mass incarceration. LGBTQ rights and an equality agenda for all Nebraskans, uh, reproductive justice and women's rights and health, uh, which is another key priority area for us. And then, of course, for the ACLU. So the First Amendment and free expression um, are always going to be at the top of our list. And that's actually a, an area that has surprised me so much. I thought, how much First Amendment work can there be in 2019? Like, haven't we worked most of this out? Oh, no, we we deal with First Amendment and free expression questions far too frequently <laughs> in our work. Additional efforts that, that we have prioritized include immigrant and refugee rights. A few years ago, we were preparing to step back from that space in, in honor of the so many incredible community partners doing great work in that area. Um, but with the advent of the Trump administration policies on family separation and the Muslim ban and ending TPS and threatening DACA, it's an all-hands-on-deck moment. So we've re-elevated those issues um, and, and are definitely making a, a positive difference there, whether it's anti-immigrant housing ordinances in Fremont and Scribner or a massive ice raid in rural Nebraska. So those are good examples, I think, for me to ask yeah. this question, which is, on the one hand, we see an invigorated social empowerment. Mm -hmm. Perhaps uh, the Me Too movement might be an example mm -hmm. Of, mm -hmm. of that kind of resting of, of civil rights and, and social justice issues to the good. Uh, on the opposite side, you've mentioned some of those other rising mm -hmm. Uh, movements, this this um, anti the other, you know, initiatives and and sort of uh, uh, adjustment of these social norms in some way. So how um, how are you perceiving society's beliefs and behaviors? How do you see those things as we look at the landscape in Nebraska now? Well, I'll tell you, as a longtime active member of my community and a not so casual observer of our political system, uh, it would be untruthful to say that I wasn't concerned um, and that it didn't cause anxiety um, at our kitchen table or in our boardroom. I think that we're living in very precarious times. 
Uh, it's striking to me as I'm driving my kindergartner to, to school in the morning that she's worried about her friends, um, her friends of color, and about whether or not they're safe and secure. Um, that wasn't a conversation that I was necessarily prepared to have with a kindergartner. And we, we try not to talk about a lot of political rhetoric at home, um, but that was part of her experience and her classmates' experience. That, that concerns me as a mom. That concerns me as a citizen. Uh, it, it makes me worry about um, where we are today and how we'll come through this political moment. Um, but on the flip side, I am an eternal optimist. I believe um, in the, the, the power of our institutions. I, I believe our values are um, enduring. And I believe that even at the darkest moments that there's more people who want good things than, than who want um, more headache and more hurt and more hate. And that doesn't always sell a lot of newspapers, and it doesn't always translate to social media, which sometimes can be a bit binary for more nuanced and complex conversations, which should be a part of our dialogue. I know having served in the legislature and doing the kind of work that we do today, that people can and still do come together to find solutions to really complex and controversial issues. Um, so I haven't lost faith in the system. I, I don't think that, uh, that all is lost. And, and, but I do appreciate that people feel overwhelmed. I do appreciate that our work has changed when we go out and about across the state, um, particularly when we're doing Know Your Rights presentations with immigrant communities. When you walk into the church basement, um, the fear is palpable. It's different. It feels different. And I, I, I definitely appreciate the gravity of that impact um, in our daily life. And that's something that, that, deeply, that deeply concerns me. But I know that we can't give up. We have to renew our commitment. Um, we have to take care of each other to make sure that we can be in this um, this battle for the long haul. And I, I think that we're on the right trajectory. It's just, it's very painful and it's very scary at this moment, but um, working together, we, we can absolutely make a positive difference and, and try to mitigate the damage and, and put us on the right trajectory for the long haul. Uh, so here I am, um, and I, I might be an unusual, the unusual face of a new immigrant mm -hmm. to America. But that's what I am. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I feel as if I reflect back to the rest of the world what America is and mm -hmm. could be. And I'm wondering how, if you think about the rest of the world, what would you say to our European partners, our Chinese partners, our Latin American partners? Mm -hmm. This is why you should still look to America as a beacon of something worthy and something more righteous? Well, that is absolutely a difficult question. A lot to <laughs> unpack there. Um, but I, I think that even though things are precarious, 
Um, and I think that we are losing some of our power and position in the world as a beacon for hope and freedom, um, that there's still more good than bad, that there's still more open minds and open hearts than than those that are closed. Um, I think our best days are before us, not behind us. Uh, and I see so many bright spots, whether it's people you know, really out in the streets at the women's marches or standing up for immigrants and refugees or the young people that are organizing against school violence across across our communities and across our country. Um, we have a really robust uh, student intern and clerk program and do a lot of speaking at college campuses and high schools. Um, the more time I spend with young people, the more hopeful I am about our future, how committed they are to community, um, how thoughtful they are about addressing complex, um, pressing issues before us. And when you look at the demographics, our country is becoming more diverse. It's becoming younger. Um, it's becoming more progressive. And all of those factors make me very hopeful for, for a very bright future. Um, and I think that we have to figure out how to mitigate the damage in the short term and, and continue to work for the change that we want to see in our communities, whether that's individual Know Your Rights empowerment sessions, whether that's electoral politics, or whether that's, um, you know, speaking up and letting people know in this country and beyond um, that there are good people here that are fighting for um, America's soul and our future and our freedom. Uh, and I, I think that people recognize that. And you see that in the response to our immigration system where people like you still want to come and be a part of our community and our experience and, and help to, to quilt this beautiful tapestry that, that is the American story. Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. conversation with Danielle Conrad. Danielle, thank you for being our personal beacon oh my of goodness gracious. the best days being ahead of us. <laughs> so thanks for being on the show. This is so fun. Are we already done? Oh my goodness. That went so fast. <laughs> thank <you>. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, 
and the people that bring community to life.